Today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, where when then therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. This is the word of God. Hi. So don't worry, Rob's okay. One of the things that uh, we are called to do as elders is have the privilege to come and uh, deliver the sermon every now and then. And it is my privilege this week to uh, talk through uh, this passage in John for us. But before I go on, uh, we need uh, our spirit. So let us pray. Uh, Father, We know that without you, uh, nothing is possible. And so we pray that we have open hearts and minds, that we may receive your word with gladness, with joy, and that it may transform uh, our hearts. In Jesus' Lord, let me pray. Amen. So thank you, Linda, for for, uh, reading the passage for us. So... um, so uh, all four uh, of the Gospels actually talk about uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, um, if you recall, actually Rob talked about the account in Mark. And, um, but, you know, just as a refresher, and he, you know, you can actually listen to it online if you wanted to. But just as a refresher, uh, let's just review what it is that we're looking at in terms of a scene here. And then uh, we'll do uh, that, and then we'll make some observations about, uh, first, what the temple goers were doing, and then secondly, uh, what Jesus was doing, and then we'll talk about why this is important and and hopefully some takeaways from there. So, Passover. So we we see that in the narrative, we see the Jewish people uh, preparing Passover sacrifices. Now, if we recall... um, this is what God asked the people of Israel to do uh, when they were enslaved in Egypt. And if you recall the study of Joseph, that's why they were in Egypt to begin with. And then in Jesus' time, um, this remains a very important festival on the Jewish calendar. Now we see that Jesus is no different than other Jewish people at that time. And we see in verse 13, um, Jesus, along with his disciples, going to Jerusalem to the temple. Now, just to give you a scale of what this looks like, about 
I guess historical documents talk about 300 to 400,000 people traveled from all around their area to make sacrifices at the temple. So the temple. So what are we talking about here? The uh, temple uh, is where God meets his people, where people atone for sin and then commune in his presence. Uh, we see a pretty good description about what that te temple looks like, that tabernacle looks like in Exodus, and then Solomon's temple, um, and then Zerubbabel's temple. And it's, but it's really the same kind of concept. We have Levite priests, the robes, the exacting standards about what goes where, and then, of course, the sacrifices and the rules themselves. And then, unlike modern times, there's actually really only one temple. And in Jesus' time, and the one that's pictured here is, is Herod's temple, after King Herod, who was the ruler uh, at the time. And this com complex is not just the temple itself, but it's a very large complex. And uh, as you can see from the slide, it's probably best described as a space of about 10 football fields. And it's about 15 stories high at its peak, and nothing really remotely close to this size and scale was uh, around for miles around. It's very grand. And you can actually see in the next slide uh, what it looks like today. You'll see uh, the, the square portion on the right hand of that, the photograph, uh, aerial view, and then you'll see in the middle there a golden dome. That's actually a mosque. Now that's a long story, <laughs> so we won't get into that uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this sermon, but and there's another one slide too, what it kind of looks like. You can see the, the temple walls or the complex walls, and then you can see sort of the scale of this large uh, uh, building complex. But really, um, an important thing here is in verse 14, where Jesus encounters the money changers and the merchants, and, uh, and that happened at the court of the Gentiles. The area has apparently been evolved into a, a bazaar of sorts, a, a, a marketplace where people come and change their money, uh, which is kind of you know, a currency exchange, and then buy their sacrifice animals and buy their souvenirs. And you can imagine that it's almost literally a zoo. Uh, again, three to 400,000 people uh, coming you know, fairly close time um, to, to the, uh, the sacrifices. Now, we, we've read the verses, and we can be, at this point, maybe tempted to judge the people there a little bit. It's actually a fairly practical and legitimate reason why some of these things happened. I mean, you're not going to, as a uh, worshiper, as a God-fearing person, you weren't going to drag your animal from your home all the way to the temple, which could be days or even weeks away, and you probably didn't have the right animal to begin with, and um, you needed advice, you needed the right currency, etc. So, in that gentle, uh, the Gentile's courtyard, you can get good advice from the various priests that were stationed there to help you. You can get your money exchanged. You can get the right animal. You can do all the ceremonial sacrifices and, and whatever you're supposed to do. And you can even get souvenirs and snacks, from what I understand, even a tour of that magnificent site and be on your way. So you can see why this maybe needed to be, be there. Uh, it was convenient. Uh, it was innovative, actually. So now, now that we have some idea of what the scene looks like, let's make some observations 
about what those people were doing. And then let's take a look at what Jesus was doing too. So what were the people doing? Let me make a few, maybe three observations. First, they were seeking convenience. Now again, it was a much better idea to put the people near where they're going to make those sacrifices after all. And as I try to describe, it made a lot of sense for these things to happen, right? Again, flow of hundreds of thousands of people going through. You can imagine it's like going to a football game, but with your cow. I mean, it's, it's kind of a big hot mess. It's very daunting. So having some sort of efficiency would have made sense. Now fast forward to today, and we can see that it's not an ancient idea to seek convenience. A recent New York Times article uh, put it pretty well, and I quote, uh, convenience that is more efficient and easier ways of doing personal tasks has emerged as perhaps the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economies. And then this author uh, quotes the co-founder of Twitter saying, convenience decides everything. Now, we used to watch television with commercials, right? And it seemed like a real, now it seems like a real waste of time. And some of us used to wait at the post office, buy your stamps, and send a letter just to have some correspondence. Now we use text and email. All that stamp, whatnot, seems very foreign to us now. Things have radically changed. If someone in the early 20th century saw how we now lived, they would hardly recognize our society. Now, I've made a, a couple of slides here, and this is gonna make you either wonder what that is, or uh, just lament of how old you are. <laughs> just a couple of things. Because um, that tapes, and for you junior high kids here, you can just ask your parents what that is. And Atari, of course, I used to love it. And uh, of course, the now defunct Blockbuster. Um, so we move now toward the path of least resistance, right? The most efficient, the most convenient, most comfortable. But what is the result of such a series of small changes? Before you know it, it's radically different. And where does this lead to? And what are some of the consequences of those iterative changes on that cumulative level? Interestingly, people are actually starting to ask these types of questions, like what are the uh, modern conveniences doing to our hearts and our minds? Um, and one of the most convenient innovations of this time is social media. Instead of uh, take, talking to one another for updates and connections, we can just scroll through and see everyone you know and seeing what they're up to, like in one blast. However, similarly, people are talking about the side effects of social media. And questions like, what are the effects on people's mental health? What are some social issues that can result? Uh, how are people relating to one another in this type of a changing dynamic, etc.? cetera? And, and I think it's a good idea to talk about where we're headed. Unfortunately, the questions that are being asked now are really a reaction to what's been occurring. And why these studies are happening is because the explosion of depression and anxiety-related cases across the developed world now. Behavioral health and mental health care 
demand is skyrocketing, with a shortage of med medical staff and counselors to meet that demand. A recent study said that it may be plausible, and I quote, it may be plausible to talk about a Facebook addiction disorder because addiction criteria such as neglect of personal life, mental preoccupation, escapism, mood-modifying experiences, tolerance, and concealing the addictive behavior appear to be present in some people who use social uh, networks excessively. And this is true ex uh, especially amongst our young people and our children. Let me give you a, a few statistics from the American Pediatric, I'm sorry, sorry, American Academy of Pediatrics, among other contributors regarding social media. They say that 91% of 16 to 24 year olds use the internet for social networking. Social media use is linked with increased rates of anxiety, depression, and poor sleep. And social media has been described as more addictive than cigarettes or alcohol. Now, we can't discuss all the reasons why mental issues are manifesting themselves so rapidly in recent years, and we certainly can't attribute all of this to social media, but the point here is people are starting to make correlations with social networking. And the question is, is it worth being more efficient and convenient to go on social media than to meet up a friend in person? But this is not about social networking only. We can talk about a lot of the things that we do daily in the name of convenience, whether it's how we get rid of our trash, mining and drilling and with the impact on the environment, how we use technology in general, our work habits, evolution of entertainment, evolution of childcare, social welfare, etc. The list really goes on. Really, this is about what we are doing when we go the path of convenience without really thinking about it. Now, at the temple, the people are being moved by convenience rather than recognizing that this is a holy temple, which was supposed to be a place of dignified prayer and communion with God that's now turned into a marketplace. Moreover, the marketplace has, was at the court of the Gentiles. And this court is supposed to be reserved for the people at the bottom of that religious order the ones that probably needed the most help. So second, the people of the temple were seeking to take charge of their own salvation. Now this one's a little bit trickier. Just follow me for a minute. So when the Passover came, the folks there, through their own efforts, brought, they brought the sacrifices or, or paid for them. They actually went to the temple. And this is not an insignificant thing that plays onto your heart. While technically obeying the letter of the law, you can start to feel like you are gaining leverage, leverage to obtain your own salvation. And this, in essence, is works-based salvation. Again, fast forward to kind of our time now, replace the sacrificial animals and the temple, and in the same way we say to ourselves, if I go to church, if I do these things, if I do those things, I can check that off the list and I'm good to go. It may not be necessarily convenient, but it gives us control. And it gives us leverage because we did something a good Christian should do. We think our good deeds makes God owe me. 
But what happens when we have that works-based salvation mindset? What does this really look like? Our, re our relationship with God, then, is reduced to a transaction, a contract. Our relationship with God, then, is no different than buying something from a store. You don't really you know, you think about something that you're buying from a store. You don't really care about the seller, who they are, where they're from, what their background is, what their needs are. It's the product that you want. And here's your money, and give me my stuff, and, and that's it. And at the same time, we no longer are accountable to the person who sells us things. The seller has no say on how we conduct our lives, or as long as I give them the money. And we can go on with each of our individual lives. So transaction. But is it a real surprise that we behave like this? I mean, so many of our systems that we're familiar with in our daily lives work the same way, right? So work. If your boss didn't pay you, would you actually work there? No, of course not. School, would you really be going if you weren't going to earn a degree? And even family. Are the members of your family relating to each other in a series of transactions? Is possible? You can, if you get this done, then you can do this. If you get that done, you can do that. So perhaps it's, it's comprehensible that we should treat church and God in that similar way. Because so many of what is around us interact like that. So again, maybe not a good excuse, but maybe an explanation. So we reduce salvation to a transaction. And reduce our relationship with God as not a familial, father relationship with God, but a God that gives us what we want with the right combination of sacrifices or good works that we provide God. But have we really thought about those consequences? Have we really thought this through? Now, John 5 says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So in reality, when we put our relationship with God as a transaction, we are actually putting ourselves in the position of having to fulfill that transaction. And, the only, and only the righteous and pure can actually fulfill that contract, right? In other words, you're signing contracts that you cannot fulfill. It's like buying a product without enough money. It's like buying a Bentley with the change in your pocket. Just is not going to work. So you're putting yourself under the law, and none of us can actually fulfill the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not covet. You shall not have any gods before me. The list goes on. Have you ever committed any of these sins? I would suspect yes. And when we see the futility of us being able to try to fulfill that contract, the realization ultimately leads to anxiety, fear, performance pressures, fatigue, and then ultimately failure. So that leads to our third observation of what the people were doing. And really, this is the, uh, just a reason why they were doing actually the first two, is of being drawn by convenience or drawn by self-salvation. The third thing that people were at the temple were doing was ultimately they're putting themselves at the center. By putting the Passover sacrifices as a transaction instead of a relationship, by putting as a priority convenience and comfort, 
and by putting the provisions of God um, first rather than God himself first and putting our own goals and desires ahead of pursuing God's righteousness. Ultimately, uh, they were putting themselves at the center. So what can we learn from that one? How can we be putting ourselves first? The question is, are we putting the provisions of God, meaning the gifts of comfort and convenience, the gifts of good worship, the gifts of doing good things and having good things as the ultimate way of pleasing our own desires? Or worse, are we putting our own fleshly desires in front of God's will? Romans 1 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the served and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It is much easier to, and much more tempting to worship the created than the creator. It is much more comfortable and seems much easier, right? And, and frankly, if you've read the Bible long enough, or uh, it's pretty easy to catch on that, yes, God can make us very uncomfortable. So the quintessential example, of course, is the account of Job. Now, Job is a righteous man who is uh, put under trial, and he loses everything. Uh, it's a book in the Old Testament. I invite you to read it. It's, it's, uh, it's truly one of the most outstanding accounts of what happens to a person. So all these things happen to Job, and he questions God. He questions his own existence. And yet, does God satisfy Job's questions? Absolutely not. All he says is, he is God. All God says is, I am God. I would, I would recommend that you just thumb through at least the book of Job, especially the verses starting from chapter 38. And that's when God actually responds to Job. God does not answer any of Job's questions in the prior books or prior chapters. Instead, what he does is Job, God gives Job a new perspective. God just says, I'm God, and helps Job get a new perspective on himself and of God, a God that is purposeful and mighty and far behind our comprehension. So God is not uh, comfortable, but he's not being inconvenient to you just to spite you or just to show his strength. And we can read that in Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But it is hard to see that perspective in our everyday. No one wants to do that inconvenient thing, that suffering, because we have other goals. We won't, so we, what we do is we put God out of the way, into our calendars, compartmentalize him into a facet of our lives, contained, controlled, transaction only, bring him out when we need him. So that's what the people at the temple were doing. They were focusing on self. 
And that's what we could be doing too. So we have what, a few things of what the temple people are doing. Let's see what, what Jesus was doing with some zeal, as we read. Um, so we can read here in verse 14 on, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drew them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what was Jesus doing? If you recall from the previous verses uh, about the wedding, and that's uh, the beginning of chapter 2, uh, Rob walked through that account last week, if you were here, where Jesus turns water into wine and saves the wedding feast and saves the bridegroom from embarrassment and, and possibly more. Now, in this same chapter, we see a very different Jesus. We see a Jesus in a very different light, right? So why did John put these two accounts together. Uh, let's uh, do a little bit of uh, contextual and some unpacking here. Because what we'll find is that it's actually the same thing. So what Jesus is doing is at a very extreme act. It didn't maybe sound extreme just reading about it, but he was actually upsetting the entire status quo of the temple, angering the priests, upsetting the process, the whole system. In fact, there's some debate about how many times there was a, a temple cleansing. But most historians agree that um, this cleansing was sort of the last straw for the religious leaders at the time. And within a week, chronologically, uh, we'll see Jesus on the cross. So yes, he made everyone very uncomfortable. Yes, he upset the apple cart. And that's quite different than what we can on the surface see from the wedding narrative. But just like at the wedding, we are told the truth of who Jesus Christ is. This is more of the same of Savior Jesus. But in this count, I think what Jesus is saying here for us is wake up. Wake up to what? He's saying wake up to the fact that he is the temple. He is the authority. He is the sacrifice. And he is the reconciliation between you and God. And so in saying that, he must be also saying, no more transactional relationship with God, with your own futile works. No more marginalizing those marginalized, the Gentile in this case, the secondary in society, and no more focus on yourself. So Jesus Christ in this narrative confronts and startles us out of our own reliance on convenience and comfort, relying on our own works and salvation, and being centered on self. And just like at the wedding, this is a rescue. This is Messiah, as foretold by all the prophets in the Old Testament. And he's compelling you to no longer have that transactional relationship with God, but instead compelling you to seek a redeemed, grace-based, perfect, fatherly relationship with God. Not only because he's almighty and powerful, but because he is purposeful and wise and good. So wh why are we talking about this and what is our um, takeaway? Why is this important? 
So everything in the Bible is there so that we can see who Jesus is, right? And therefore who God is. Like we see in verse 22, Jesus did those things which ultimately led his own disciples to believe in the scripture and in Jesus as well. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we get a little bit of insight in how that works. So the truth is that Jesus who brought that wedding, uh, brought to the wedding that really good wine, the gift, is the same Jesus that we see here. And he gives himself as that perfect sacrifice, that perfect gift to the temple as well. And he is rescuing, not a wedding feast at that time, but he's rescuing us here as well, away from these things. So to us, what does that mean? When Christ is the center of your lives, as inconvenient as it may seem, you have the ultimate power and actually the key over suffering, broken relationships, uh, self-loathing, pride, in a, in a couple of ways. First, of course, it transforms your relationship with God, reconciles you with God through the blood of Christ. But it also transforms your relationship with yourself. You're no longer anxious. You're free from condemnation. Yes, you, you will suffer as we've talked about. But that suffering, actually, within Christ's authority, you have joy. And ultimately, you know that it is for your good and his praise. And also, it transforms your, your relationship with others. When Jesus Christ is in you, you are called to be that temple. And you can offer grace and mercy to others with a supernatural generosity that cannot be found when you're centered on self. So God wants this for you, and he wants a relationship and a communion with you. So application, right? What, is a, what does a relationship with God look like? <clears throat> this is always a little bit of a tricky thing. Everyone does this a little differently. So I had to reach out to my good friend John Piper. I'm not, I'm not really his friend. Um, <laughs> But I thought this was very helpful in thinking about what a relationship uh, could look like. So this is kind of a long quote, so bear with me for a second. Okay. What a relationship with God means is that we are receiving communications from God about himself through his word and through history. He comes to us in Jesus Christ, in his teaching, in his cross, in his, in his apostles, through his word, and he is speaking to us. He speak, he, and his speaking is made vital to us by the present presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And Piper continues, So let the Bible be the place where God meets you and speaks to you, and let the Bible be the place where you speak back to him. The relationship is in this communion, him to us and us to him. To me, it's a reminder not to neglect reading and praying, and praying and reading on a daily basis. Discuss in your family, discuss with your children, discuss with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, for those who have not found Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I recommend that you do the same, actually. 
pray, read, talk to him, ask questions. Importantly, repent and ask for forgiveness for your sins. It is not too late to start a relationship with Jesus Christ because he is your rescuer. You know, the world is, is waking up to questioning our over-reliance on modern conveniences. You know, actually, the, the New York Times article that I quoted uh, continues and says, created to free us, it, meaning convenience, can become a constraint on what we're willing to do and thus, in a subtle way, can enslave us. So yes, people, not just Christians, but people in general are questioning the dangers of our free fall into convenient lifestyles. Unfortunately, here's where the author gets it wrong. Here's how it gets it wrong. The article suggests doing some things inconvenient, you know, slow cooking, <laughs> whittling wood, I don't, I don't know. Um, and of course, the objective is to find meaning in our hobbies, in our sports, doing things slow, etc. And I would say a lot of us, myself included, start to try to find meaning in other things. Um, children, achievements, relationships, etc. Now, that, that author was on the right track of, of questioning, but the truth he doesn't get. It is not in doing something deliberately or doing something slow or doing something else to find meaning. We must wake up to the truth of who Jesus Christ is in our lives. Let me conclude by reading uh, from Colossians 3 again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you forgive us. We ask that you forgive us for centering uh, the things on ourselves, seeking comfort and, and convenience, and, and frankly, it's more of a, uh, repentance from myself. Um, but we ask that uh, you help us. You help us realize who Christ is, that he should be the center of our lives. And Father, that uh, we pray that you work through us, that we may um, have that reconciliation with God, that uh, through your spirit that we can be supernaturally generous to others, and that you work through us, that we know that we are not condemned, and that, Father, that there is meaning beyond uh, what is uh, right in front of us in this world. In Jesus' Lord's name we pray. Amen.